I enjoy uh, the history, as you know, the history of words and expressions, and Marcia has uh, purchased a number of books for me that are in my library. As I studied the expressions that we're going to look at, uh, I thought we'd cover all eight, and you know how it goes, we're going to cover three. But uh, as I looked at these particular ones, uh, Paul is going to tell us how love doesn't act, and he describes a very unattractive behavior. He's nearly crass in his descriptive verbs. One thing's for sure, he tells it like it is. And and as I studied them, the description that came to my mind was pig-headed and stubborn. When's the last time you've looked in the mirror and said, you are so pig-headed? Pretty good exercise to do every once in a while. What does that mean? Well, as I thought of that phrase, I went to my library and pulled a few volumes down and sure enough found the history of that phrase. This expression, pig-headed, dates back to the Middle Ages and the Southeast Asian country now known as Indonesia. This is a legend of a king who had incredible powers over the forces of nature and life and death. He could, according to legend, enter a meditative state and while in that state actually have his servant take off his head with a sharp sword and then after a while put it back on his shoulders and it would mysteriously rejoin without ever disturbing the king. So whenever the king wanted to show off his powers with dignitaries who were coming you know, from afar, awed by this rather obvious and unique power, he would have his servant lop off his head with a very sharp sword, and they would all watch as his head, when replaced on top of his shoulders, mysteriously reattached. The only problem was one particular day with all these guests around and everybody watching this display, his servant uh, cut off uh, his head with a little too much uh, enjoyment, uh, a little too much force, and the king's head rolled into a nearby river and was washed away. Uh, the servant was frantic. He didn't know what to do. He saw a nearby pig and thought, well, that'll work. So he used the pig's head instead. Now, this is not a very good bedtime story, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Some of you dads are thinking, I like this story. This is my kind of story. Well, the king came too and was upset, understandably. Uh, he had his servant killed and then moved his royal residence up into a high tower where he lived out the rest of his life. He declared an edict that when anyone was around the tower, they were never, ever allowed to look up. They had to keep their eyes on the ground, lest they look upward and see the pig-headed king. Over the course of the next few centuries, the phrase eventually came to refer to anyone before whom you must grovel, never question. Just stay quiet and nobody will get hurt. It became an expression for prideful condescension where all others must recognize that king-like people, pig-headed though they are, are far above everybody else and were to act like it, even though in reality they are grossly unattractive and unhappy. Paul is about to reveal the unattractive and ugly side of people. 
a pig-headed people. People convinced of their own superiority. And when you're around them, it's best that you look down, stay quiet, and nobody will get hurt. And he uses language that we can all immediately understand. There are no loopholes here. There are no question marks. Nobody in Corinth or in Cary can read this text and say, huh, what does he mean by that? In fact, I've chosen to title our study as practically as I can. I'm just going to call it refusing to be pig-headed people. Even without knowing the history of the phrase, you just know that's not something you want to be. How to refuse to be a pig-headed person might just be the down-to-earth wording that we won't soon forget. Now, in our last session, we opened with the two action verbs in this list of 15. Remember, these are not adjectives, even though it looks like they are in your translation. They are verbs. So we translated them beginning with verse 4. Love exercises patience. Love demonstrates kindness. Those are the attractive qualities. Now he begins to rattle off eight negative statements about agape, and they are down to earth. In fact, they are um, they're in your face. There's nowhere to hide. The next phrase in chapter 4 is this. Love is not jealous. You could translate it so that you could get the flavor of a verb. Love does not burn with envy. One author that I was reading said that there are two classes. This is William Barclay. He said there are two classes of people in the world, those who are millionaires and those who want to be, those who have and those that want to have. Well, jealousy, or envy as your text might be translated, comes from the Greek word that means to boil, uh, to be fervent, to be passionate. That's why I translate it, love does not burn with or boil with envy. The problem is this particular person Paul has in mind is boiling over with what somebody else has and what they have a fervent desire to have as well. In fact, it's more than that. What makes this particular verb all that more seriously deviant is that it refers to not only wanting something that somebody else has, but wanting to have it and them not to have it. Wanting to have what they have so that they can no longer have it. This is jealousy at the deepest, most corrupt, destructive level. This is the kind of jealousy that showed up in 1 Kings chapter 3, where two women showed up before the court of Solomon. You remember to settle a dispute, they both claimed that a baby boy was theirs and that the other woman's baby had died in the night. These women were living in the same house. They'd both delivered boys within three days of one another, and, and one woman's son was accidentally smothered during the night, and while the other woman was asleep, she traded out her deceased baby for the living baby. The other woman, awakening later in the morning, knew immediately upon waking that this was not her baby. This was not her boy. Hers was the living one. Of course, that woman who'd stolen the baby in the night lied. What a mess you had here. This was before DNA testing. No court could settle the dispute. And since these women were both prostitutes, 
Uh, There weren't any fathers around to serve as witnesses. So there are no witnesses. There's no way to solve the case. It's she said, she said. So it escalated up the judicial ladder until they actually stood before Solomon. Solomon had no idea which mother was the mother of the living boy, but he did have insight into the human heart. He knew that one of these women was so driven by jealousy that she didn't really care about the baby, only that the other woman would not be allowed to have a baby if she couldn't have a baby. So Solomon said, bring a sword and let's divide the child in half. And the true mother acted predictably. She said, no, Solomon, don't do that. Give her the baby. I'd rather her have the baby than than it die. And the jealous mother, the one burning with this kind of envy, acted predictably. She said, that suits me fine. Kill the baby. You see, she didn't really want the baby. She didn't care about the boy. But what she wanted was for the other woman to not have something that she couldn't have. And that's what mattered. In fact, she said to the other woman in front of Solomon, who was about ready to swing the sword in 1 Kings 3.26, the the lying, jealous woman said to the other woman, divide him, he shall be neither mine nor yours. So Solomon wisely said, we'll give that first woman the baby who wanted it to live. She is his mother. Can you imagine jealousy burning so greatly against what another one has and And what you don't have, that you would be moved to such cruelty just so they can't have it anymore? Don't you see this on the news? This is the jealousy of a man who kills his former wife who plans to marry another one, another man. He can't have her. The other man won't have her either. Go through the Scriptures. It appears over and over again. This was the poison behind Cain. He burned with such Jealousy toward Abel, his brother, whose sacrifice was acceptable to God, it led to the first recorded murder in human history. This was the jealousy over Daniel's pending promotion with the king that led men to plan his execution at the mouths of lions. We can't have Daniel's promotion, but we'll make sure he doesn't have it either, and so we'll make sure he dies. This is the jealousy of Joseph's brothers who sold him to to slave traders so that their father would no longer be able to favor him. We can't have our father's favor, but he isn't going to have it either. We'll make sure of that. This was Pilate's admission in the record of Scripture that the Pharisees delivered up Jesus for crucifixion. Why? Because of envy. It had nothing to do with blasphemy. It had nothing to do with some claim to destroy the temple, not even his claim to be Messiah or miracle-working power. Mark's gospel records Pilate was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. They were literally burning with envy. They were jealous over Christ's authority and ministry among the people to the point where they wanted to put the competition to death. Do Christians envy other Christians? Could we have that poison within us? Do churches envy other churches? Do Bible study leaders envy 
the popularity of another Bible study leader? Do singers envy more talented singers? Is there competition in the name of Christ? And the answer is yes. Well, Paul says agape is living without competing. This love is demonstrated when someone is glad that another person has something they don't have but would like it to. Which means true love is contentment with what God has given you. You're happy with it. Someone sent me some time ago this rather humorous tongue-in-cheek poem that demonstrates the fickleness of uh, rather jealous love. It goes like this. Sam's girl is rich and haughty. My girl is poor as clay. Sam's girl is young and pretty. Mine looks like a bale of hay. (laughs) Sam's girl is smart and clever. My girl is dumb, but good. Now, would I trade my girl for Sam's girl? You bet your life I would. (laughs) Would you long to trade with someone you envy? You might envy the health of another Christian or their job or their physical appearance or their spiritual gifts and talents. You might envy their spouse, their children, their position, their personality. Ultimately, the jealous person destroys themselves. They fracture their own peace of mind and sense of purpose. Why? Because their eyes are not on Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Their eyes are on one another. You know, it's interesting to me to recall that it was to the Corinthians, the same body of believers, that Paul wrote, when you compare yourselves with another, you are not wise. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12. And remember here, by the way, as well, ladies and gentlemen, Paul is not telling the unbeliever in 1 Corinthians 13 to love without envying. He's telling the believer, which obviously means it implies then that we as believers can live jealous, petty, envious, bitter, clamorous lives. I told you he would be in our face. He, he would tell it like it is. This is not agape. James did the same when he warned the believer, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish strife in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. In other words, admit it. Don't try to get around it. And then he adds, for where jealousy exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. Jealousy is ultimately destructive and ultimately we destroy ourselves. Nathaniel Vincent writes, how much of the pit, that is how much of hell, is there in the spirit of an envious man? The happiness of another is his misery. The good of another is his affliction. He looks upon the virtue of another with an evil eye. He is as sorry at the praise of another as if that praise had been taken from himself. Envy makes him a hater of his neighbor, but his own tormentor. Now can you see the wisdom and the rescuing of his own spirit 
from this kind of torment when John the Baptist's disciples came to him and and they said to him in John chapter 3, Master, our, our followers, they, they are leaving us and they are going over to this Christ. And John the Baptist said, you remember? Effectively, we could only hope as much for he must increase and I must what? Decrease. True love does not burn with jealousy over something someone has or is. True love is love without competing. He goes further in verse 4 with the phrase, Love does not brag. You could understand Paul to be saying, Love does not go around shining a spotlight on oneself. True love does not live to brag. The one who loves with agape is not the subject of his own conversations. The one who is is merely proving he is in love with whom? Himself. By the way, this word is used nowhere else in the New Testament in this form than here. It refers to one who literally, simply, talks a lot about himself. You'd think that Paul, you know, he's describing, he's speaking of this, this grand agape that, that he wouldn't talk about something like that. That just seems so commonplace, so ordinary, so obvious. But yet he's, he's putting it right down here where we can grab it. A person who is full of himself is not full of agape, is what he's saying. One author added this insight, jealousy is wanting what someone else has. Bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we have. Jealousy puts others down. Bragging builds us up. This was the trumpet blowing of the Pharisees. They wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't do anything unless it was going to be published, along with their photo in the Jerusalem Gazette. And they never ran out of material because they were full of themselves. They were in love with their own image. They were show-offs. They were boasters. They arranged so that the morning and afternoon and evening prayers would find them at some public intersection where everyone would stop and pray, but they would be able to be seen from all four directions. Just timed it that way. When they fasted, they put ash on their face and they moped around to prove that they were indeed godly. They were full of themselves. They could not be full of agape. There isn't room in your heart for both. The truth is the braggart doesn't recognize or realize that he's actually advertising his own emptiness, the shallowness of his spirit, and ultimately his own pride. Isn't it interesting that we can spot it in somebody else just like that, but we don't see it in ourselves? When Paul wrote this text to the Corinthians, they were involved in spiritual show-off contests. They were attempting to best each other with the most sensational public gifts. They were after the prestigious offices, and they all wanted to have the microphone whenever they met for worship. They were trying to sort of outdo one another and and one-up each other in the assembly, and the result was carnality. The result was utter chaos. Earlier in chapter 4 of this letter to the Corinthians, Paul rebuked They're bragging when he wrote, listen, what do you have, listen to Paul's wonderful logic, 
as he tries to help them. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Same word here. In other words, if whatever we have and are are the gifts of God's grace, shouldn't we all gather around this campus every time we're around each other and brag about the grace of God? Since we have nothing but what we've received from the Lord. No wonder the Apostle Paul said, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Galatians 6.14. It's the only sensible response to the awareness that whatever you are, God made you, whatever you have, God gave you. I love the way Moffat translated this phrase here in your text. He said, love makes no parade of itself. It never throws a parade in its honor. It's good, isn't it? Here were the Corinthians, petty, boastful, and proud. They were all living in their own self-made towers, demanding that whenever anybody got near them, they were to lower their eyes out of honor and deference and respect. In reality, they were in the process of becoming pig-headed people. It was nothing less than sheer pig-headed, devilish pride. Think about it, C.S. Lewis wrote. It was pride that made the devil the devil. Paul is making it very clear, if you will love others as Christ loves you, don't live to have what they want, don't be, what they have, don't be jealous. Secondly, don't become your favorite topic of conversation. Don't be a braggart. Solomon said in Proverbs Let another man praise you and not your own lips. Now he goes on in verse 4 and he adds, and don't act with arrogance. You see how these three just dovetail nicely together, and I knew this this was all we needed to do. You could render it, love doesn't strut around with an air of superiority. Your translation may read, love isn't puffed up. It's a good translation. Warren Wearsby Uh, once wrote that man is the only animal that when you pat him on the back, his head swells up. It's good, isn't it? It's interesting to me, yet sad, that the Corinthians had such an obvious problem with arrogance. Now listen to this. Six out of the seven times this verb appears in the New Testament, it appears in this letter. J.B. Phillips Translates it well, love does not cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. This is the man in Luke 18 who prayed, Oh God, I thank you that I am not like other people. This is a pig headed man. I'm up in the tower. Oh God, thank you that I'm not down with the peasants below. One author summarized this arrogant spirit well when he wrote, arrogant people think they're better than other people. They think they know more than they actually do. They consider themselves holier than others and imagine themselves more gifted than they really are. They are blind to their own glaring sins, weaknesses, and doctrinal errors. Arrogance blinds 
our eyes to the truth. This is the same word Paul used to judge the Corinthian church, the same body, for not disciplining from its membership the unrepentant man from the assembly who refused to stop his sexually immoral relationship with his stepmother. He he continued his incest, and the church thought they were exceptionally loving. We are filled with love to include him and ignore his sin. And Paul wrote in chapter 5, you have become arrogant. Same word in 1 Corinthians 13. You have become full of yourselves. That's what you are. You're not tolerant. You're not loving. You're arrogant. You're proud of your defiance. And that message needs to be delivered today. The church today that believes its tolerance towards sin and unrepentant sinners are badges of openness and love are actually self-condemned by Christ for arrogance. I pulled out the newspaper. In fact, I was, I was over at Chick-fil-A having my devotions. <laughs> oh, I wasn't having devotions. I was reading USA Today. And I pulled out this article, sad article, related to the continuing battle within the Episcopalian church relative to issues of homosexuality. The article talked about a meeting that had been called recently. There's a couple of pictures With many of the bishops and church leaders, the article said the Archbishop of Canterbury himself actually flew over here and attended, urging the American liberal bishops to make concessions for the sake of unity. Unity, by the way, they they believe must be kept in spite of the fact that homosexual men are being ordained to church leadership. Unity that must be preserved while same-sex couples are having their unions blessed with church prayers. The archbishop, in his attempt to keep the church unified, pled with the liberal bishops to, and I quote, exercise restraint in approving another gay bishop. How about exercising discipline? How about warning of God's divine opinion regarding sodomy? How about standing up for the words of God regarding man's relationships and judging any immoral sexual activity, whether it is heterosexual or homosexual, as both sinful and forgivable? For this, Christ died. There is a call for the Episcopalians to exercise restraint. My friends, you do not exercise restraint regarding sin. You do not sin in moderation. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and the church today, not just Episcopalians, but Baptists and Methodists and non-denominationalists, and effectively says, you think you're loving by tolerating sin, you've actually become fusiao, you've actually become arrogant, infatuated with your own intellectual gymnastics. You are actually in love with your defiance. You are in love with your autonomy from the Word of God. You've done nothing less than elevate your view above God's view, and you are saying you are loving, which implies God is not loving. Like Elijah of old, the church needs to restate the clear choice of distinction where he said to the people of God, you can have Baal, A God that, by the way, allowed all sorts of sexual perversion as part of worship. 
or you can have God. You cannot have both. Paul told the church in Corinth, related to this verb, you can have fellowship with that incestuous man, or you can have fellowship with God. You cannot have both. You can have, my friend, that hidden affair with a woman you work with, or you can have God. You cannot have both. The Bible is clear that unrepentant adulterers go to hell when they die. Hebrews 13.4 You can swindle and you can cheat and you can lie or you can have God. You cannot have both. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 10 Listen, young people, you can have sexual activity outside of marriage or you can have God. You cannot have both. Revelation 21, verse 8. But they say, I love God. No, they don't. They love themselves. Paul put it this way. True love for God and others would not be arrogant. It doesn't proudly walk in a way that God clearly disapproves. It doesn't elevate our view above God's view. Those who choose sin, those who choose fellowship with sinners over fellowship with Christ, do not know what true love is. True love seeks to rescue the sinner from self-destructing. That's true love. True love seeks to bring that sinner into fellowship with Jesus Christ with a challenge to repent, not pat him on the back and say, everything's okay, we're going to love how distorted the truth of the church today has become. True love seeks to find those who will worship God in spirit and in what? Truth. Well, what has Paul said about true love here? First, agape is the kind of love that doesn't act with envy. Secondly, agape is the kind of love that doesn't brag about itself. Thirdly, Agape is the kind of love that is not inflated with its own opinions. These three, in a variety of ways and in varying degrees, say the same thing. True love is love surrendered in humility to Jesus Christ, His opinions, His words, His life. It is refusing to build a tower and put ourselves at the top and ask that everybody else grovel around us. These three descriptions are a warning for those who would really like to escape the tower that we naturally construct and come back down to earth where pig-headed people are converted into big-hearted servants. For those who will accept the humility and the selflessness of love, as Paul has described it. One of the most effective missionaries that we're still reading about today is William Carey, the father of modern missions. Many of you know a lot about him. He would serve in India, translating parts of the Bible into 34 languages. He was a brilliant, brilliant linguist, one of the world's foremost linguists. Before entering the ministry, he, had a, he was a shoe cobbler, he repaired shoes. In the late 1700s, 
when he took over his father-in-law's shoe repair shop when his father-in-law died. While he was in the shop repairing shoes, if you can imagine, he taught himself Italian, French, Dutch, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Guys who can do that really irritate me. Oh, wait, that sounds like envy. I'm glad he could do that. Happy for him. Once at a large gathering of dignitaries and other well-known people, I read this, where William Carey was in attendance, an upper-class snob sneered down at Carey and said, I understand that you, Mr. Carey, once worked as a shoemaker. Oh, no, sir, Carey replied. Not a shoemaker, only a shoe cobbler. He wouldn't even claim to make shoes. He corrected the man that he only repaired shoes. The opposite of agape is pride. The opposite of being pig-headed is being big-hearted. And the ingredients that go into becoming a big-hearted person is first and foremost the ingredient of true humility. So let me, let me just give you in closing some questions to, to ask. You don't have to write these down. Let's just let them filter through your mind as you go through this week to see if you're developing the fruit of agape. I'm certainly asking myself these questions too. From these three verbs, you could ask yourself these kinds of questions. Whose opinion do you value the most, yours or God's? Is your lifestyle modeled after God's Word or what you think is best? How often will you listen to someone go on and on and on about their own life without interrupting them with news about yours? Does your neighbor's house or car or family make you angry? Or are you glad for them? Do the accomplishments of other believers cause you to rejoice or simmer with resentment and feelings of being overlooked? One more, how often will you talk about yourself this week, your problems, your achievements, your plans? I like the way one author put it. I'm not exactly sure how he did it because it's been a number of years since I, I read it first, but it was this kind of idea. Will you walk into a room with the attitude of, here I am, or there you are? Ladies and gentlemen, agape doesn't belong in a tower. It doesn't belong on a tall pedestal either. It, it, it works best down here among us ordinary people, doesn't it? the daily things of life, and it becomes the evidence of a life that is truly, ultimately surrendered in humility before God. And we have the assurance, like Martin Luther, the reformer, who once said, God made the world out of nothing, and when we are nothing, He can make something out of us as well. I'll tell you, one of the things that he will create is a person who desires to live out in the realities of daily life, the evidences and the activities of genuine, true love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. 
It is not arrogant. Would you pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for putting the truth of of your word down where we can reach it. Grab it. Understand it. Now by your spirit and our submission and surrender to you, recognizing tonight every one of us are filled with ourselves. We're caught up in our own world, our own lives. How easy to construct a tower and have everybody serve us. And we evidence the humility of our own Lord who humbled Himself, left the glories of heaven and became a servant to love us, to die for us, who now even intercedes for us. Would you make us content with being nothing, knowing that you take nothing and from nothing create something? May it be in our own lives, we pray, for your glory's sake and the advancement of the gospel and the unifying of this assembly around truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.